This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Well, you know, it's funny. My daughter, her school, they did a like a choir, a virtual choir. They were doing Lift Every Voice and Sing. And so they had to, what was it? They had to count to 10 before they started. And then, you know, one, two, three, and then one, two, three, clap so that they knew when to synchronize the whatever. And then once they stopped singing, they had to count to 10 to give the, who had the editor, like room to buffer and clap. I was like, these are things I never thought about. (laughs) Okay, Steph, I think that it may be time for us. Okay, and then do I, am I starting? Am I starting? I I think, let's have you start. Okay, yeah, okay, very good. (laughs) Ready, three, two, one, here we go. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, This is The Other Side of Campus. Hello, I'm Stephanie Seidel-Holmston, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. And I'm Dixie Stamforth, a Professor of Instruction in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education. And today we're talking with Dr. Danica Sumpner. Danica began her career as a registered nurse in the neonatal ICU after obtaining her undergraduate nursing degree from the University of Texas at Austin School of Nursing. She was also a graduate student and earned her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Her professional work centered around medically fragile infants. She has taught at the University of Texas at Austin School of Nursing since 2012 and has taught a course about teaching and learning in practice settings. She's currently chair of the Family Public Health and Nursing Administration Division at the School of Nursing. Danica's clinical experiences and those of her students continue to highlight the persistent health inequities in this country, especially for people of color. She is currently most passionate about elevating her consciousness and those she interacts with as a first step to dismantling institutionalized racism and improving the health outcomes of marginalized groups in America. She is a member of the Health Subcommittee of the Black Mamas Community Collective and co-chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee at the UT Austin School of Nursing. Danica, we are so delighted that you are here to join us today and we can't wait to talk with you. Absolutely, thank you both for having me. Well, we are thrilled to talk with you today, and I think we are most interested in kind of kicking this off and hearing a little bit about your journey to the School of Nursing here at UT Austin. Would you share that with us? Absolutely. I have had, I guess, two journeys to the School of Nursing, one as a student and another as a faculty. So I'll share a little bit about both of those. So I think from a very young age, I knew I wanted to be a a practitioner in health. I thought I wanted to be a physician for the longest time, a pediatrician. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school, I went to high school in the Austin area. I was at the Science Academy of LBJ before it became LASA that it is now. 
And since we did not have a school of medicine in the area, I was placed in the school of nursing as part of an internship in my senior year. And my understanding of what nursing was, was shaped by what I saw in popular media. So at the time, ER was um, a very popular show. And so that was my understanding of what I thought nurses did. However, through that internship at the School of Nursing and also through volunteering at what was then the Children's Hospital of Austin, I saw that it was nurses that spent the most time with the patients. The physicians sort of go around, you know, they do their rounds, but that's all the patient interaction that they had. And I thought, wow, I kind of want a little more interaction than that. And at the School of Nursing, I saw all of the, the limitless things that you could do with a nursing degree. So I could go on, get a master's and become a nurse practitioner and have um, a practice where I saw patients. I could become a nurse counselor. I could become a nurse educator. I could get a PhD and become a nurse scientist. And so that really opened my eyes. And that was when you know I got bit by the bug and I realized that nursing was for me. And through interactions with some really inspirational nursing mentors, I call them my nursing mamas, they sort of helped cultivate this this love of learning about nursing through an an additional internship the summer after I graduated from high school. I was able to see nursing research from the ground up and kind of from the inside out. And those were sort of inspirational in Even how I approached and thought about nursing research, I think a lot of my undergraduate colleagues were a little intimidated or, you know, research was this kind of boring, dry thing. But it it was alive for me because of those, you know, kind of formative experiences. So I graduated from college, wasn't sure where I wanted to go. Um, My parents wanted me to go to um, a small historically Black Christian college. So I did that for a couple of years and then transferred to, to UT into the nursing program and graduated. And just again, the faculty mentorship. One of the faculty, when I graduated, told me, okay, you're graduating, but I know you're going to come back um, for your graduate degree. And when you start looking at graduate schools, you know, you take your top 10 nursing schools, you draw your line and you work your way up. And so when I graduated, I got married um, pretty soon after graduation that July and moved to San Antonio. And I wasn't sure what kind of nurse I wanted to be. I, through nursing school, I kind of learned what I didn't want to do. <laughs> I had a job as a, um, a patient care technician in a rehab hospital and cross-trained to a psych facility. And working in a rehab hospital, like turning patients, you know, with my back, I was like, ooh, okay, I'm not sure about that. So ended up in the neonatal ICU, as Stephanie mentioned, and turning my patients was a lot easier, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> Little tiny babies. <laughs> and so I ended up going to University of Pennsylvania um, for graduate school and I didn't think that I would ever be a teacher, to be honest. Um, Both my parents are in education, and I remember hearing the horror stories. Um, My mom has sort of been everywhere from elementary to central office to she graduated from the Texas um, Education Agency. So she's been at, you know, each stage. And my stepdad is a post-secondary educator. And I was like, ooh, they've got lots of horror stories. I think I'm going to do something else. I'm going to be a nurse. 
little did I know that nurses are teachers. Like we we teach our patients, we, you know, we teach each other. So I, I did graduate school, um, did a PhD. I was certified as a healing nurse practitioner, but did not practice as such. Um, I went straight through and did my PhD, had my son um, along the way in Philadelphia and then moved back to Texas and was working um, at the bedside. Ended up getting a job as um, a pediatric acute care nurse. And through that, got a job as a, we call them a medications assistant. Now they're clinical teaching assistants with the undergraduates, um, undergraduate or BSN students in the School of Nursing. And that was kind of my first little taste of education and continued to work um, at the bedside at Dell Children's Hospital, and then ultimately ended up at UT teaching in our, it's called Alternate Injury Program. So it's students who have a degree in something else and they've come to nursing as a second or third career. And I really love teaching those students because their experiences are so varied that each quarter, so the program is is accelerated. So I have a group of students for like seven weeks and then a new group. And so each quarter I get a new group and they're so different. You know, I could have someone who was an attorney, a former attorney or a PhD in zoology or a teacher or a social worker, a Black Hawk helicopter pilot. So it just, it ran the gamut. And so it was continually humbling for me to teach them. and. I loved it. Um, I taught them child health in the practicum or clinical setting as well as in the classroom setting. And then through that, I was still working clinically, but then as I transitioned to more administrative roles, my clinical practice sort of waned. And I think that's one of the interesting things in being in a practice discipline is that when you the more advanced you sort of go in terms of management or admin, the further away from the patient you get. And so what I've, it was like a grieving process when I finally stepped away from the bedside because that had been been such an integral part of my identity as a nurse was taking care of patients. And now that that was gone, I was like, it was like this identity crisis, but the way I reconciled it was, and I think you kind of alluded to this at the beginning, Stephanie, as a nurse at the bedside, I impact patients and families, maybe like a dozen a week, maybe on a good week. But as an educator, my influence is like ripples in a pond because the 60 or 80 students a year that I teach they are going to then go out and impact hundreds, thousands of patients and families. And so then the the magnitude of that opportunity slash responsibility was like, wow, like, okay, I've got I've got a, a good thing going here. Like I, I can I can really make some change. Um, and I think in February of 2018 was kind of when I had a an existential crisis <laughs> um, in, in my teaching. When I was um, a PhD student, one of the faculty asked us, like, what do you want to be the queen of? Basically, like, what is the thing that you want to be known for, that you want to, you know, apply your, you know, your all to, um, to making change for individuals? And I wasn't sure what that was. So as a NICU nurse, my PhD was looking at um, infants, um, as you mentioned, with congenital heart defects and kind of what was going on with parenting stress and growth and development. But 
I moved to UT and there were no there were no infant researchers um, within the School of Nursing that I was working with. And there was also that tension between clinical track faculty and tenure track faculty. Um, so going to an R1 institution, that's what was sort of indoctrinated. This is what you do. You, you know, you go, you get your postdoc, you apply for, a, you know, a K award and you do these cert certain things to position you for the R01, you know, the, the gold standard in, in nursing research grants and that this is the trajectory that you're supposed to do. But I wasn't doing that. And so there was dissonance um, within me um, as a, a new faculty that I was not doing what I thought I was supposed to do. Um, here I am, a clinical track faculty, really loving teaching um, and getting enmeshed in the, the science, um, the neuroscience of, of teaching and learning. But was that what I was supposed to do? Um, and so I came to an understanding that this is my story and I get to write the narratives that lots of other people will write narratives for me, but I get to ultimately decide what that is. Um, and so in February of 2018, um, we were at a faculty meeting and we were discussing, I was chair of our division at the time, and we were discussing um, a faculty member was sharing incidents of racism that her students had observed in the maternity sort of setting. And she was talking about how she had helped her students navigate and walk through that. And we were like, yes, we all need to be doing that. Um, but, you know, one brave faculty piped up and was like, you know what, I'm not really comfortable um, doing that. And so we thought, okay, we need to get comfortable. So how do we get comfortable? Um, and we brainstormed. We um, came up with the idea of the faculty and staff book club. Um, so a space that was um, sort of out of the, the gaze of students where faculty might feel more comfortable making missteps and and um, stumbling through, you know, different things, sharing sharing failures. Um, but we also wanted to involve the students in the in a conversation. And so we developed um, a school-wide movie night. And so through the movie night, we have a facilitated dialogue where we can discuss issues of racism. Such a great way to encourage conversation among faculty and students. What I'm hearing in this, and I'm sure there's more that we can move on to as well, but is a lot of moments of, of transition, right? So the, the PhD studies, the bedside, the classroom. Tell me that moment when you sort of transitioned from the bedside to that classroom for the first time. You mentioned your parents were teachers. What was that like to be back in the classroom like that? I think I experienced and probably still do imposter syndrome. So I moved from being a neonatal ICU nurse to being in a pediatric acute care. So the floor that I worked was a respiratory and infectious disease floor. But yet I'm teaching like everybody's system but I'm not feeling like an expert in everybody's system. And so I'm trying to anticipate questions that students are going to potentially have and not feeling like I know enough. 
Um, but what I have come to understand now is that that's not possible <laughs> and that students actually appreciate when I'm authentic and say, I do not know everything. It's not possible to know everything. And really, my job is not to teach you everything, but to teach you how to think and to know where to go to find everything. Because, you know, healthcare, just like everything, is ever evolving. We're finding new ways to do things. And it, it will be disingenuous or a disservice to you if I sort of said this is the way rather than helping them think in shades of gray. So yeah, that's definitely been a journey. (laughs) And it seems like Danica, that there is a freedom in that. Do you feel that, that just that ability to, to really not have all the answers? Absolutely. It is liberating and it allows me to role model for them the same, the same space in the same way. And I think that frees them up to be a little bit more bold and courageous in their learning because they are not tied to trying to maintain an identity of expert. And that's, there's a, a theory that we often use in nursing, the novice to expert continuum that's borrowed from Dreyfus. Uh, Patricia Benner is the, the nursing theorist, but that you kind of start on this novice end and sort of work your way up to expert And I share with my students, like especially as the second degree students, what they were doing before they came to nursing, they were likely pretty expert. And then they've come to nursing as the second career and they've slid back down to the novice end of the spectrum. And that is disconcerting for them, especially because that program, um, as most accelerated programs, tend to attract a certain type of student, really driven, high expectations of self and others. And so it can be a little discombobulating for them. And actually, I, I shared this, that this whole notion with the current course that I'm teaching. So I am designing a course this semester, the Art and Science of Teaching Nursing. And it's an asynchronous course. And it's the first time I've taught an asynchronous course. And I think it's good that I think both of you are in the AQ course that we're taking, that we get to be students um, and kind of dog fooding or uh, testing our, our own product, but to be in that space. And so I was just really honest with the students, like I was having lots of internal battles with myself about I have expectations and I would love to be able to do X, Y, and Z, but it's not quite playing out that way with life and just everything else. Things are not as I would like them to be. And I had to take a step back and think, I've slid back down to the novice end of the spectrum. Like, this is why this feels so uncomfortable. My mom would share a quote with me, you know, change is so uncomfortable because it temporarily moves us to a state of incompetence. And I was like, this is how I feel. (laughs) I felt like I was a pretty good educator. And like, here, I'm back down here. And I'm like, okay, what is going on? But I did read, what is it? Linda Betcher, her book, The Online Survival Guide the survival guide for online teaching. And she talks about how the first time you do a course, you're pretty much in survival mode. And then maybe the second iteration, you can incorporate some more technology. And it's not until that third time that you deliver it, that you really start to feel comfortable. So I know that intellectually, but however, emotionally, (laughs) I still, I still struggle with the perfectionism, you know, sorts of things. Well, and we try and protect ourselves from those vulnerable moments because they feel so uncomfortable. You know, um, I I would love to explore this continuum just for a moment, even though it maybe isn't specific to to the story. But um, I'm just fascinated by this idea of um, 
it, it sounds linear to me in nature, this novice to expert. And, and my sense is having taught for a long time and having been fully entered in with you in the incompetent mode in the past year, you can report to your mother. We have all been there and we, you know, we definitely feel that. I guess I see life as so nonlinear and that that your Blackhawk helicopter person who was in your class brought these rich experiences with her that even though her skill set might have been towards the novice end, that her expertise is going to be birthed out of a much broader um, life experience that, that she brings with her. Um, would Could you share a little bit about that? I'm just fascinated by that continuum. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the model has to do with like skill acquisition. So that's pretty linear in terms of like you get better at something the more you do it. But to your point, I think that's the whole one of the, the points that undergirds a lot of these accelerated programs. So our program is 12 months. So you become a registered nurse in 12 months, which traditionally in an undergraduate program takes two years. And so because of that experience that you bring with you, whether it's book knowledge, theoretical knowledge, lived experience, that that sort of accelerates the pace of which you're acquiring these other, this new set of skills. And so we often see students that graduate from this program on a fast track in terms of leadership once they're in the hospital or whatever setting they end up working in the community. And so it is because of that that past experience that they're able to build upon. So you're absolutely right in terms of maybe a nonlinear sense more globally, but in terms of the skill acquisition, it's I certainly see some you know linearness, if that's a word. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for clarifying that for me. I miss the skill piece of it, and that that really clarifies it totally for me. The one other thing that that got me thinking about is, as you shared your story, there was a lot of experiential learning through the years for you, it sounded like. Multiple internships and being able to learn what you wanted to do and what you didn't want to do. Could you share maybe a little bit about how that... that learning model of experiential learning maybe either helped you move forward or perhaps even how you have blended that into your teaching today? Oh, good question. So I think maybe early on, um, I mentioned the things that, you know, within nursing, the nursing undergraduate curriculum is kind of, you get a little taste of a lot of different things. And a lot of students in nursing school, like not exactly sure which direction they might want to go in terms of patient population. And just the way our our healthcare system specializes um, is interesting in and of itself. But that little kind of sampling of things gives you a taste of what you might want to do or maybe might not want to do. And with the experience piece, your question also makes me think about my doctoral training. And I was going in expecting that I was going to be taught how to teach because I was like, well, that's the expectation. Like when you finish is that you're going to go teach, right? So you're going to teach me that. But it wasn't there in any grand form. But thankfully, we, the midwives at UPenn had a, a postmaster's teaching certificate program. So I was able to, to take that and, and to get some sort of pedagogical, some underpinnings to figure out. Yeah, but but the experience piece is what I keep running into in terms of how academia is. 
So you're put in this administrative position. Don't really have a lot of experience, knowledge, theory about how this works, but it's kind of OJT. We'll work through it, figure out what works, what doesn't work, get feedback and just improve and get better. But thankfully, UT does have the um, executive management and leadership program, which I was able to take advantage of just the, the contacts that made the connections across campus, which the PTF is another great venue for making cross-disciplinary connections. Dixie, I don't know that I answered your question at all, but... Uh. <laughs> you did. You absolutely did. You know, I was thinking more experiential teaching and learning, and yet you're really talking about the bigger picture of it in light of all of the different roles and aspects that we're involved in with our jobs. So thank you. <laughs> so to the, to the teaching and learning piece, I, I get back on track. So my, according to my Clifton strengths. So my number one strength is as a learner. And so I I just enjoy learning for the sake of learning. And so I'm always reading and trying to figure out teaching strategies and different things. And so in terms of the experiential learning with teaching, you know, trying out different practices within the classroom. So, you know, I'll flip, flip the classroom and we'll see how it goes. And then getting feedback from the students midway and realizing, ooh, okay, maybe I went overboard a bit. Let's dial it back. Okay. And we'll find a happy medium, but also being really transparent with them about why I'm doing what I'm doing, I think has been really beneficial. And I didn't know it at the time. A lot of times I'll do stuff and not realize that there is like science or there's sort of theoretical foundations for this. Um, So in terms of andragogy, like adult learners really appreciated rationale. I was just doing it because I like to know why. (laughs) Um, But having them see why I'm doing this, one, and two, that I'm doing it because it's based on evidence and based on science, they really appreciate that, especially as we espouse within, I would say, most health sciences or probably any field, to have an evidence base. Um, If I'm teaching them to be an evidence-based practitioner in their nursing, I should be an evidence-based practitioner in my teaching. Um, And so I found that they, they do appreciate that. I liked what you said about, we'll see how it goes. So you try something, we see how it goes. You said earlier, humility. And when I think about my experience with folks in the medical profession, there is a lot of of listening, right? The lab coat might express some sort of knowledge up here, but for me and those healthcare professionals to work together, we need to hear each other, some level of compassion, Can you talk to me about what that looks like in the classroom, sort of capacity building for compassion and sympathy? Absolutely. And I don't know, again, that's probably not part of our training, but I mean, it's part of who I am as a person that these are people too. And I think our experience as students in our current online learning class has, I know for me, increased my capacity for grace. Um, when you're embodying that, like the empathy, which I'm guessing maybe um, for all faculty, as we've gone through this past year, our empathy for what the students are experiencing should have increased because we have been thrust in student mode as we pivoted to online learning. But in terms of capacity, I, I mean, and compassion, just knowing that these are 
these are people like they have lives outside of my classroom space. Like they've got families and maybe it's the, the, the demographic that I teach. A lot of them have dependents that they are supporting or relying on. A lot of them are paying for school themselves. So they are, you know, super motivated and just connecting with them as people is super critical. The, the current class and really the class I taught last semester, race, power, privilege, and health, we were intentional about building community because if we're going to talk about these really sensitive things, we need to like gel pretty quickly. And so how can we do that? And which that was surprising to me. I was concerned about the ability to do that over Zoom, but it happened. What were some things that you did that were particularly effective? We'd love to hear that. Yeah. So I would say a, a technology that was really useful was Hypothesis. So this sort of community annotation software that they were able to read through these articles and to share, like they're highlighting, you know, points that resonated with them. They're sharing their thoughts. They're linking other resources, maybe YouTube videos or whatever. It's been a podcast that they heard and sharing resources. And also because a lot of the readings that I use were outside of healthcare. So sociology, anthropology. So there are words that are not part of the nurse's lexicon. And so there was the glossary. So we we developed sort of a glossary. So if you came across a word that you didn't know, you defined it for your peers. And they're, oh, thank you for that. I didn't know what that was. And so it, it enabled them to discuss and like build community before we got to class and we were going to discuss the article. And so you already sort of knew where people were and how you were jiving or maybe points of contention or, you know, disagreement for further discussion. And then I, as a faculty person, could refer maybe to someone's comment who maybe was quiet in the classroom discussion. And so I've heard it referred to as a warm call instead of a cold call because they had already shared out in the public space, but I could bring them, I could invite them into the conversation using their own comment. So that was one way. Before we move off from that, Danica, how did you find those students react? I'm just really interested in whether or not they responded positively and did it shift their behavior and communication as the semester unfolded? The warm calls when you would call out one of those students from some something that they had shared and you tried to integrate them into the, the community that was not on paper community, but the actual conversation. Yeah, they were they were good. I think because they had developed this sort of online, in a sense, community by having a conversation in hypothesis, they already felt sort of close. You know, you have the people that are introverted that just don't generally like to share verbally, but are still sharing and contributing to the conversation in an online space. And so they were they were fine. And the other part of that was they co-created a community agreement at the beginning of the course based on hopes and fears for the course. And so part of that was being mindful of how much space you take up. So whether it's too little or too much, and they were going to hold each other accountable to that. And so they had already agreed, everyone signed. And so they already knew what they were, what they were in for. That's beautiful. I like how you use that tool and for students to see each other identifying words that they didn't know, defining them, you know, just as you suggest, every position in that classroom, we're asking questions, we're solving problems together and admitting we don't know everything, but it doesn't mean we're not equipped to solve that issue or to think critically about that topic. Exactly. Because everyone, everyone brings valuable insight and information to the course and like being 
humble enough to like acknowledge that. And that was kind of how I started out the first day of class. I was like, I'm a nurse. I'm not a sociologist or a historian, but this content is important for us to talk about and to know about as nurses. And so I am continuing my unlearning and learning journey. The more I read, the more I realize I don't know. And so that was how I framed everything. And so I think that gave them permission to not know also um, and to be comfortable with not knowing. That sounds like a powerful way to build community and particularly in the online environment that that is so challenging to do. It sounds like you've done that really effectively. One other thing when we introduce you that, that we mentioned that we would love to learn more about this aspect of community is could you tell us about the Black Mamas Community Collective? Yeah. So this was part of my February 2018 existential crisis. KUT, our local NPR station, was doing a series on maternal mortality. And as I listened to the stories throughout the week, I listened to the statistics and I thought, okay, not only are things not improving, they're getting worse. And just having flashbacks to being a graduate student and learning about the weathering hypothesis and these things that happen to Black women and women of color when they experience racism. And I thought, okay, Danica, here you are, a PhD prepared person. What are you doing about it? Like, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And so I had this sort of moment where, okay, okay, God, like, what do you want me to do? And so I had a good friend who was the executive director of the Black Mamas at the time. And she had sent um, an invitation to a summit that they were having at Houston Tillotson. It was called Show Up for Black Mamas. And then I saw the invitation come through again through the School of Nursing, um, another faculty member. And I thought, okay, this is the second time I'm seeing it. Okay, I'm supposed to be here. And so I go and I'm like, this is it. So this coupled with the conversation of the faculty not feeling comfortable, all of these things sort of collided. And so the summit was really powerful because I was like, this is a space they are organizing. They're mapping out a strategic plan, like thinking about how do we impact Black maternal mortality, not just to help mamas survive, but to thrive. And so you know, I'm no longer in the clinical space, but I'm in an academic space and I have influence or my circle, my sphere of influence is nursing students, which are going to go out and potentially impact the lives of many Black women, Black moms, Black babies. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is it. And so that was kind of how I got involved with Black Mamas and being on their, their um, health subcommittee. And so one of the big charges that we have on the health subcommittee is to look at health education and how do we get providers to learn about um, racism, systemic and structural racism, health inequities in a more nuanced way. So oftentimes we talk about cultural competency and we talk about diversity in kind of these coded ways, but we don't want to talk about racism, like to say the word. However, that's been one of the silver linings, I guess, to, to use probably an overused term that has come out of the events post May 25th is this increased recognition for the need to talk about racism um, and perhaps an increasing comfort with those conversations. And so it's it's been it's been good. Part of part of my why. <laughs> When you mentioned the talking about racism, I study the election of women and so often talk about sexism as well, right? And these sort of structural 
aspects of our society. Tell me a bit about microaggressions and the ways that you think about that. Yeah, I think um, microaggressions in my mind are sort of an outpouring or the consequence of our implicit biases. Um, So all of us have biases. All of us are socialized um, in America. It's, you know, lots of structural isms are just a part of the air we're breathing. And so because of the segregated lives that we often live, the information that I get about people who look different, think different from me is often not informed, not well-informed. And so because of that, I'm going to say things that are uninformed, incorrect, just downright wrong. And we all do it. Um, And so it's not a matter of if, but when. And so I think one thing we've done at the School of Nursing, we had Be Vocal come and do their bystander intervention training. Again, because it's not, and it's lots of different, you know, it's not just race, but it's, you know, to your point, Stephanie, sexism heterosexism, ableism, like all of those things, but how can we, one, recognize it and then feel comfortable and capable to respond when we see it? And that's the thing with microaggression. So sometimes it's kind of like, did that just happen? And that's that's the whole nature. Like, it's not until like the after where you're like, wait a minute, they did just say that. And so that's part of it. But the ability to be able to go and to check in with the person who was a, a microaggressed or with the person who did the microaggression to be able to question or to repeat what they said. Did you really, did you mean that? Or just to share perspectives, to, to find ways to, to intervene and to interrupt harm. But I think it's important to give students and faculty a script or like language. And that's something I've been thinking about too. I just read an article and I, I emailed the, the author because they mentioned simulations or simulated activities where faculty could practice. This was specifically about navigating difficult conversations in the classroom. But I've been thinking about that. How do we equip faculty to to do anti-racist teaching, and that's part of it, you know, being comfortable with conflict and how do you sort of help students navigate through through conflict. So what would it sound like if somebody shared a microaggression in class? What would you do as the faculty member in that moment? So one example where I was sort of called in to you know, debrief with the students, there was a a representative from one of the test prep companies that was helping prepare our students for our big licensing exam. And there was an Asian student that was asking sort of a clarifying question. And the representative made the assumption that the student was asking the question because the student didn't understand English. And that was not at all why the student was asking the question. And so the students actually had recently had the bystander intervention training. And so they like called out the representative and a whole you know slew of things ensued. But shout out for training, right? <laughs> yes. But so I, I came in to share with the students like, yes, you know, awesome job. And then also to share some things that we were doing on our faculty in, but to really encourage them to consistently be aware and to intervene, especially on behalf of your classmates, maybe who are not in a position of privilege and don't feel as comfortable speaking up. I also had a conversation with the representative and that sort of played out how 
when Robin D'Angelo sort of um, goes through the the lists of things that people use, I've got I've got people of color in my family, like that, like that was sort of how the conversation played out. So there was not this awareness on her on her part, but something that has become useful for me and I used in my class last semester was models of racial identity development. And so we're all sort of in this different space along our how we come to understand our racialization. And Dixie, to your point, it's not linear. Like we move back and forth. <laughs> I can <could> see that. <laughs> <laughs> within, within these spaces. Janet Helms is one, but that, that has helped me sort of frame when I'm having conversations with people and maybe they have a certain reaction, their emotions, et cetera. I'm able to, okay, they're not, they're, maybe they're here, they're, you know, they're having dissonance with this or, you know, that, that's helped me to grapple with, with response. But I think, Dixie, you, your question, maybe you didn't ask it as a question, but it made me think of something. A lot of um, anti-racist teaching or pedagogy puts an emphasis on process rather than on outcomes. Um, and I think that piece positions you as the faculty person, as a facilitator, and not the person with the answer. Um, but your job is sort of to help students work through because the value was in the process of working through this situation. Um, it's naming the emotions. So that was a big piece too that we talked about um, in the class last semester. Within um, academia especially, I think the whole notion of emotions, emotionality is like disregarded. Um, Megan Bowler has um, Pedagogy of Discomfort. Her book, Feeling Power, um, Emotions and Education, talks about how Emotions are almost, um, not almost, but they are sort of like this pejorative thing. Like you can't, like being rational and being emotional can't coexist. Um, but she talks about the necessity of emotions. Like that is kind of our barometer for when something's not quite right. Um, and so we really, you know, wanted to, at the beginning of this course, be explicit and name, like when your heartbeat starts going fast, when you find your voice shaky or your palms are sweaty, like stop, interrogate that? Like, what is that about? Why is that? She talks about um, these two different kinds of anger. Like sometimes we have like a righteous indignation or like an anger, but sometimes it's anger for other reasons, for negative reasons. And so like, how do we, how do we interrogate that and, and examine that and not just gloss over and push it aside, which I think the students brought out some really great points, even in how we tell them or teach them to write. Like, don't use the first person. Like, you're divorcing yourself from yourself. Like, you're talking about in third person. The authors say so-and-so. It's like, who does that? <laughs> and so it was really a, a great conversations, just kind of about the importance and need for acknowledging emotions. It's so intuitive when you're talking i'm i'm it's the it's the connectedness to the intuition to the emotion that is making you so wise in these moments and i think you're right that maybe i have not always when i when we used to stand in front of students that is not the moment that i'm thinking about my emotions i'm thinking about knowledge and facts. And those things aren't separate. Why do I separate those things, right? And that ability to connect 
and to be instinctual is so helpful in, in learning, which is exactly what we're trying to model in the classroom. You mentioned standing in front of students, and that's something that I have recognized over the last year that I truly miss. I didn't realize how much energy I got from that space. I mean, I, I love connecting with them via Zoom, but it's just, it's not the same. There's there's like this reciprocal sort of field, energy field that, that just happens within, within that space that I think I took for granted. And once we get back, I know I, will, <laughs> I won't take it for granted again. <laughs> It's a thing, isn't it? It is real. And I think those of us who love teaching, we tap into that energetic field all the time. And, and it is difficult. It doesn't work the same on Zoom. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, because I walk. Like, I'm a walker. I'll be walking and I'm talking. Uh -huh. And like, I can't do that. Like, my camera only goes a certain... <laughs> I know. And someone brought to my attention eye contact. You know, you can't yep. tell that I'm looking at you. I'm looking at the screen and we can try and imagine, but you can't tell that I'm, you know, giving you a little elbow to say, I really like that idea. Or I'm looking at you because of something that we shared. We don't get that anymore. Exactly. And that's, I think, one of the, the paradoxes. There was something that came out of the, the Stanford um, Virtual Human Interaction Lab about Zoom fatigue. And it talked about this like sustained eye contact, it's, it's like intense, like it's super intense. It's not our normal eye contact because normally if I'm talking to you in person, I might look away, I'm looking over here, but like in Zoom, we're like so hyper-focused and that, that's stressful. Yeah. It's super intense. It is so true. And exaggerating emotion, you know, exaggerating body movement to try and communicate across. Yeah, I have heard this idea of it's okay to be in a meeting and look away from the screen. We would do that in exactly. real life. We can do that here. Exactly. And to hide yourself so you can't see yourself, because if you're normally talking, you're not looking at yourself. But that's where we find ourselves fixated. <laughs> it's so true. The challenges that we've never considered as teachers that we like you said, the gratitude we are going to have to be back in the classroom is boundless, I think. Well, Danica, as we wrap up here, we, it's been so delightful to talk with you and thank you for sharing. I feel like, Stephanie, I, I, I think you agree because we've just been both sitting here nodding and just the wisdom and the grace with which you share and the humility. We are we are grateful for the time that you've taken to to just tell us about your journey and um and to really inform us um, in ways that we can grow and learn. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. I, I mean, again, the Provost Teaching Fellows, I, that has been like such a godsend. Just being able to be in community with other people who love teaching and like really love the like nuts and bolts and nitty gritty and talking about all these sorts of things and then being able to get outside of nursing. I think that is another thing. I think people that more people are exploring it now, but how our silos, um, our disciplinary silos have not been, I guess, helpful in helping us solve these much larger systemic problems. It's going to take cross-disciplinary approaches, cross-disciplinary education um, to be able to tackle um, some of these really big structural forces. But it's been my pleasure. Um, I always love talking with you ladies, but um, you know, I, I feel to whom much is given, much is much is required. So I, I love Well, thank it. you so much, Danica. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. 
You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Our executive producer is Mary Newberger. Our producer is Michelle Daniel. And our music and sound design are by Charlie Harper Music at charlieharpermusic.com. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you. Thank you.